0: KCL or Live, with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo, with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets, and a state of the art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie.
1: Good morning Una and Brian with you 083 306 9696 if you want to get in touch on our dinner's ready line you can also free phone us on one 800 90 or you can email if you're so inclined to live at kclr96fm.com I do want to say first off this morning that our thoughts are with Deputy Jennifer Murnan O'Connor and indeed her brother cancer Ken Murnan following the death of their mother Mary Arjeshti she. I also need to mention or remind you rather of the water outage until 12 o'clock this morning that area is Bennett's Bridge the Kilkenny Road so if that affects you it should be solved by 12 o'clock hopefully and also a road mention as well Sleevelu Road from its junction with the, nine, the N27 rather at Sleevelu Roundabout to its junction at the Bull Ring, is closed until 7pm today so local diversions will be in place in better news we have got two family heritage gift cards to give away to you this morning this card rather would give you free access to all OPW sites so it's a really valuable little thing and you can win it if you can identify this heritage site that Ethna is describing
2: I stand in ruins on the bank of the River Barrow today only two battered towers and part of an intervening wall remain after an explosive remodel
1: what am I? 083 306 if you think you can identify the site that Ethna is talking about.
3: Yeah, get those entries in. Thanks Una. And uh, we're also thinking uh, in another tragic incident yesterday uh, of the family and friends and work colleagues indeed of uh, the Carlo man who lost his life in the town yesterday afternoon after being run over by a truck it happened in College Green about half past one yesterday afternoon. The 28-year-old man who fell from the vehicle during the course of his work was declared dead by paramedics at the scene. The area was sealed off for forensic examinations, but has since reopened. Gardy and the Health and Safety Authority are both investigating. And uh, joining us on the phone now is Carlo Superintendent Anthony Farrell. Good morning to you, Anthony. Good morning, Brian. A tragic incident happening yesterday in Carlo.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. Look, it's a 28-year-old man. He, he's a resident of Carlow Town. Our sincere sympathies on behalf of the Chicanha to the family and, and anybody affected by it um, happened uh, just after just after 1 o'clock in, in uh, College Green. For people not familiar with with the area, it's just it's a housing estate more or less behind the Southeastern Technological University. So, um, look, we're, we're making appeal. Uh, for anybody who, who was in the area um, at, at the time, maybe people who were driving around the estate, maybe people of have dash cam footage, even residents who who were kind of there, anybody who can help with the Garda investigation, we'd really appreciate feedback to N'Gardish, here and Carlo.
3: And I know we mentioned it approximately, but just give us some more detail on, on the times, particularly, that people might have been in the area.
4: Yeah, okay, the, the report came into the Guard station at approximately half past one, so we're estimating the accident happened just a little bit after, quarter past one, it was lunchtime. The estate itself is, is uh, largely populated by working people and, and, and students. So the, the, the by and large, there was a lot of people not there. But that said, there could be some people at home or some people maybe visiting or, or, or passing through. So if anybody was in the area, we'd really appreciate
3: it. And people often hear announcements or requests like this from the guards. They really can be of help. It's really important that if people do think they saw anything that they do uh, get in contact. They value uh, you guys. Value those those good comments from the public, don't you?
4: No, absolutely. Look, and God, the a policing organisation can only police with the support of the public. And look, we we we, we do that with the support of people and only for people's feedback and people's willingness, I suppose, to, to give information and volunteer information to the garage corner, that these are the small little things that make a tremendous difference, particularly when trying to push an investigation and just even find the totality of circumstances that, that happened. It's standard in any fatal go traffic collision that we fully technically examine the scene that uh, we've gathered experts. In this case, we've the Health and Safety Authority there. But mm-hmm. as part of that process. It's just a, a public appeal where we can get information back that any information that is valuable to the investigation can be put into the pot of well.
3: Carla, Superintendent uh, Anthony Farrell, a tragic incident yesterday. Thanks for giving us your time this morning.
1: Now cost increases have been a concern for all of us and indeed for business owners and an added concern that's going to become I think quite topical in the weeks to come is the expected increase in the VAT rate from 9% which is where it has been since COVID to 13.5% that's expected to happen in September and I'm joined on the phone by Alison O'Keefe who is the owner of Alison's Hair Studio here in Kilkenny. Good morning Alison.
5: Good morning, Una. How are you? How are you keeping? I'm
1: not too bad. So I think you feel quite concerned about the expected rise, which should be happening in, in a matter of weeks.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, we've been the hairdresser uh, community and the IHF have been really fighting for it to keep it at the 9%. We have been hit with so many increases with electricity and everything. It, it's It's... And coming out of COVID, a lot of people have wear, warehouse um, taxes to pay and everything. So this r- increase is really going to damage us. It will damage us in an awful lot of ways. Between shadow economy, it will set people back because the sah- the salons can't take the hit this time. We've taken it a few times with the increase with stock and everything. And now with this increase going from 9 to 13.5%, it's really going to affect us big time, you know.
1: And and I suppose one of the things that consumers would have reported coming out of COVID, Alison, was the fact that, for example, amongst other service providers, but hairdressers had to increase their costs to swallow up the cost of, I suppose, changing how they provided their service. And I wonder, are those costs still relevant or, or did prices come down again after that initial increase?
5: Um, and I, I can speak, I suppose, personally for this one. I know when we came back initially, there was a, a, pre, a price increase, but that was due to uh, stock. All the stock had risen up so much and then everything that you had to get in with your disposable towels and everything. And your, with the cleanliness, well, the cleanliness was always there in the salon, so that wouldn't have been a big part of it. But it was mostly the increases of everything that went up. And then when people had to warehouse their debts as well some of you know for the government because the money just wasn't there to be paid out straight away now i know personally in the solemn people clients you say to me when are you putting up your prices? You have to put up your prices, you know? But it was out of kind of, oh God, how can I do this to people anymore? I mean, even the girls I work with would say to me, you know, Alison's time you put them up, kind of thing, you know? But did but, those, um,
1: sorry, Alison, but so say, you know, your supplies got more expensive. Did that ever yeah. change or, or have they maintained those no. high prices and they've increased further
5: since? They've increased, they've increased about three times since. And that's, it. they increased when we went back, they increased again after that. In the march and then they have increased again this summer as well in june i think it was when they increased again now the last time we had a price increase was actually when we came back from COVID, because we we just couldn't carry it you know we just couldn't take it on ourselves and i haven't increased it since you know so we're still at the same and i I probably, I know this time, if the, the vat goes up, there is no way we can carry it. It'll be affected in many And plus our electricity bills went through the roof as well, you know. They were three times higher than what they would have been. So what know? do you
1: think, if I take it to, you, to, to your own situation, suppose that, yeah. that increase that we expect will happen, unless we hear differently, we expect that's going to happen in September. What will that mean to you? in terms of your own expenses like is it a very dramatic increase that jumped from 9 to
5: 13.5 well it is because as i said we've had so many hits along the way that this is another one and this will bring up like most hairdressers won't be able to take this and i know we have an awful lot in the shadow economy as well and it'll drive customers to that side of it because they're not going to be paying taxes or rates or whatever in VAT, but we are and if we like we have staff to employ you know we want to be able to pay them as well but if the lack of people come in because of the up increase in the vat it's really going to affect us down along the line you know and
1: what do you think the chances are Alison of that not happening I know you've been um, working with the, the Irish Restaurants Association in attempts to yeah try and stop it happening the, the, but realistically yeah. do you think there's any chance
5: Well, we're hoping. We're really hoping that they're listening to us. Um, I know the IHF have really fought for us. They have met with um, some TDs and everything. We've sent TD letters and I actually got a response back there yesterday, uh, a phone call. I actually miscalled from John McGinnis, um, Secretary. So I'm hoping to speak to him as well, that, uh, that they can do something, that we're really hoping it's it, the fight is not gone yet. You know, we're still really fighting for it, because as I said, it it does make an awful lot of a difference. Every increase, as you know, it's it's an increase. You know, and it's going to have to come from somewhere.
1: Okay, well, I think we'll definitely hear a lot more about it as yeah as it as it becomes a reality. If it becomes a reality, I wanted to ask you as yeah. well, Alison, about. I suppose during lockdown a lot of people started to do it themselves at home, cut the hair or cut their their children's hair. Has that continued on in the aftermath? Have you noticed I suppose fewer customers coming through your door?
5: Yeah, plus um, after Covid it was very hard to get um, stylists and I know from talking to other salon owners, they couldn't get staff. Some staff didn't come back, some staff Stayed out because some people might have been doing it at home, not all, but some were doing it at home and didn't feel like, oh, I'm going back through those hours again or whatever. So that did affect us and it did stop clients coming back in the way they set it up. And I know that's affected a good few salons as well. And trying to get staff if you don't have the staff to cover what's coming in, you're going to be down as well, you know. So you have a double problem. Yeah, absolutely. So it was like a a double sword nearly you know you were hitting one way and hitting another way then as well you know and you like you do your best to keep your costs to the minimum but we can't just cut everything down either you know and and not as i said we just can't take this hit and if we if that goes up we have to put it on our our services and that you know as much as most of us don't want it we don't want to lose clients because you build up a fantastic Relationship with them, you you know you get to know their hair, you get to know though, them and how they can manage it, and then they're gone. You know, if they're gone, they're, if they're getting it cheaper because people are finding everything tight nowadays, you know? So you're looking for styles for people to maintain more. I mean, we do an awful lot of upkeeping with courses, which are not cheap either. You know, to keep yourself up there with the, you know, you have to keep yourself up there with all the different courses. You Things do. change from year to year. So, you know, they're all costs that we have to take in as well. And from your you perspective,
1: know? Alison, I guess it's cost, 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 and you're not seeing the assistance oh, that you'd like to see. Oh, no. Uh, dare I ask would you ever just think of throwing in the towel yourself and just think this isn't worth it
5: Do you know I did actually um, when Covid hit in I actually got so deflated with everything and then there was so much paperwork that had to be done to go back now I'd be in a WhatsApp group with other salons from around the country as well and I actually felt like I've enough I really have enough and I was actually going to pack it in and say you know this is it goodbye I mean I'm, I'm 29 years in business this year and i'm nearly 38 nine years doing hairdressing mm. so like it would have been a lot now my daughter had joined me as well and she started doing um uh hairdressing as well and i think and the girls in work i mean they're, they're from i'm lucky i have great girls they, they kind of spur me on you know and when i was going to throw it in i think they all kind of knew i was just fed up with it and I didn't I kept going and I have to say my daughter she's really put the spark back into me (laughs) you know so yeah there are times you would feel like throwing the towel in you know so I'm hoping someday maybe she'll continue on yes I'm sure she she will well
1: Alison listen thank you so much for coming on this morning and highlighting that problem I'm sure we'll be talking about it plenty in the weeks to come and we wish you the very best of luck uh, with your business good morning to you we're going to take a short break
0: ACL or live with Thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlow with a fantastic range of shops food outlets and a state of the art IMC cinema see fairgreen.ie
3: Kilkenny, Carlo, KCLR Welcome back to KCLR Keep those entries coming in For our Heritage Week competition 083 306 9696 Just before the break uh, Una was talking to Alison O'Keefe From Alison's hair studio About the uh, the changing VAT rates um, I've not been to a hairdresser's Or paid big money to have my hair done In a long, long time Practically never Is it a very expensive process For, for women in particular to go through?
1: It is. Depending on what you're doing, it definitely is. As you'll see by the roots that I have going on here, <laughs> I stretch it out as much as I can. I was thrilled Alison was not in the studio because her professional hands would have been dying to get at me, I'd say.
3: Oh, she would have been going mad. No, she's saving, saving a fortune. <laughs> I am absolutely saving a fortune. No doubt about that. Genetics at
1: all. Are, are saving you money.
3: Genetics, yeah. Yeah, that's a uh, silver lining, I suppose, to every cloud, isn't it? Sure. Uh, talking about silver lining to clouds, industrial action by retained firefighters in a dispute over paying conditions. Is to be suspended from midday uh, following talks at the Workplace Relations Commission. SIP2 divisional organiser Karen O'Glockland said in a video message to members last night that the progress at the talks had been slow and painful, but improvements had been made. I'm joined on the phone this morning uh, by Philip Byrne, Kilkenny, SIP2 representative uh, for the firefighters to find out more. Good morning, Philip. How are you doing, Brian? Uh, first of all, talk us through the talks themselves and how they progressed over those twelve hours.
6: Um, be honest with you, I, mean, I wasn't on. I'm not on the negotiating committee, so I can't really say too much about it because I, I don't know. Um, I just know what uh, Karen uh, released her this morning that uh, as I'm from twelve o'clock today, our strike action is finished.
3: Okay, so, so just for, and, and are you happy then, as an individual member, to uh, to see that things are progressing?
6: Um, I I'm waiting to I would love to see it all over. Um, we're still waiting on the full document from the WRC to see exactly what is in it. Um, but at the minute, I can't see too much extra uh, from uh, the labour court's recommendation.
3: So, would you be hopeful that uh, the changes that I've made over the last 12 hours will be able to bring this to a resolution, or do you think there's more still needed to be done?
6: Um, I would be hoping that it uh, will bring it to an end. Um, there is meant to be more coming in the, the pay talk, uh, which is starting next month. So uh, I have to wait and see what's in the full document to see exactly what is is going forward like.
3: Okay, so it's still details to be confirmed. How quickly do you think you'd expect members to actually see full sight of those details that are in that document?
6: Um, well, the, the Labour Court is meant to have uh, the full document typed up in a matter of a few days. So, hopefully early next week we'll see the full document and uh, we'll be able to sit down and discuss it and see exactly what uh, is in it, to be honest with you.
3: And Philip, these findings from the Labour Court, uh, are they legally binding in any way, shape or form, or does it still leave scope for the members um, of the union to go back and negotiate further?
6: Well, the first one, Brian, was the Labour Court recommendation. This one uh, was negotiations with the WRC so it was. Uh, this wasn't the Labour Court. So um, again, it has to go to a vote, and uh, the vote will decide whether it will be accepted or not.
3: Okay. So still to be decided. Somebody who was at those negotiations, I understand, Anthony Farrell, the Carlo. Um, uh, super not, sorry not anthony farrell apologies um the and, act,
6: andrew fisher
3: andrew fisher has joined us on the line now as well good morning andrew how are you
7: Growing, table
3: this table. Is <laughs> sorry apologies say that again
7: sorry Brian, can you hear me
3: i can yeah that's the yeah, act,
7: apologies Aiden Owens correct uh, correct correct correct
3: were you actually at the negotiations yourself Aiden?
7: No, it was actually the county rep Andy Fisher was at the negotiations last night and we had a video call there around half 11, quarter to 12 with an update and I'm literally just after getting off another video call with him there um, to get further clarification on, on what the offer is so I can have it for yourselves there this morning.
3: And you've got 15 years service with Carlo Town Fire Brigade. Um, having finished that video call, what is the offer and how close is it being to something that would be uh, acceptable?
7: Um... It's it's a very, very complicated process that took place yesterday. Um, there was a lot of, uh, I suppose, gentle arguments going on up there in the WRC um, to try and get this over the line to get us back to normal operating uh, standards. Um, just to highlight again to the community, we had a we had a tragic incident in the car yesterday which we attended with our other emergency service colleagues. Um, that just goes to highlight the importance of the fire services in our community Backing up the uh, the ambulance service, unfortunately, it wasn't the outcome that we were looking for yesterday. And my condolences to the family, and uh, yeah, it was a tough day yesterday. Mm. And uh, that's something that we always dreaded during this the strike action, but hopefully now with this proposal that's coming in from the WRC, it's it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Um, is it enough? Is it enough to please everyone? Probably not. Uh, but I do believe it's a step in the right direction. Now, the actual ins and outs and the finer details still have to be produced to us at some stage today, which um, voting nationwide to take place in the coming weeks, and they are hoping to have that done by the end of the month.
3: And how quickly will they circulate the details of the offer to all the members so they can gather the thoughts ahead of that vote?
7: There's a draft uh, There's a draft, literally only has been sent out in the last 30 minutes there and I'm not, probably not every station across the country has got that as yet and then there'll be colleagues that'll be probably still in bed or there'll be colleagues probably gone to work or whatever the case is but I'm sure by midday today that everyone will have that and they'll have a chance to digest the information that's in it. It's quite complicated. Um, it, it might take a bit of get, trying to get your head around how they're going to incorporate these the, the pay rises into the current pay system. As you're probably aware, the fire service is a very, very unique um, body in, in, in how we operate. The rates of pay change, for, you know, at weekends and stuff like that. And you, ha- you, you have different types of fire service personnel. You have those that are working full time outside of the fire service, and you have those that are in the full time service that just don't make enough money for to be sustainable. That might be on social welfare payments. So there's a lot, a lot of thought has gone into this. Um, do I think it'll all work? probably not. I think there'll have to be some changes made to it in the pay talks in September, October.
3: I mean, we've heard from previous discussions how low the rates of pay are for those retained firefighters and well below the cost of living, realistically speaking. Um, Aidan, do you think, can you give us some detail in terms of what the offer is, how much of an increase, what type of structure that increase will sort of formulate?
7: Yeah, well, basically they're guaranteed, uh, again, don't be shocked at this, they're guaranteeing a, a, a new recruit starting on a on a, on a basic salary of eighteen thousand, just over eighteen thousand a year. That's a guaranteed income of eighteen thousand a year. Now, and how does that compare to what the
3: guarantee is at the moment?
7: guaranteed eight thousand three
3: hundred. Right. Okay. So it's a it That's is a significant increase in terms of what the guarantee is currently, but it's it's still only a guaranteed income over yeah, a year of eighteen thousand.
7: Like. They're also like, without without sounding negative, they're they're still looking for their pound of flesh as well to get to to get those extra that extra income. So where you're guaranteed the extra income, you have to work in seventy five hours of calls. So you're basically getting prepaid seventy five hours of calls. So if you take a small rural station that might only get fifty calls a year, they might accumulate out of that fifty eight fifty calls. They might accumulate maybe. 150 paid hours. Now, I just give, I'm just giving just throwing you a figure there. But yeah. If you think about it, like like you're never just going to get a single hour call. Your first call, the the hour. Of, so if you're at normal daytime hours, your first hour you you get paid double, and every hour after that is single time. And then, if you get to the weekends, it's it's four hours for the first hour and a double hour for every hour after that. And Aiden, under Reduver the previous
3: agreement, on, under the previous agreement, where the, the guaranteed minimum was only eight thousand, was there any call on on the firefighters to attend a minimum number of hours in order to achieve that pay rate?
7: Uh, there would have been, yeah. It was your your retainer was based on your actual training, so you would have to attend training uh, every week. Um, and if if you went below a certain um percentage of that within the calendar year, you would be docked accordingly so your retainer would be did, uh, deducted if you didn't attend those training hours. Um so that's primarily and, and for wearing your pager obviously. But you do you do have your you do apparently have your four weeks' holidays, but um I I know that a lot of colleagues around the country can't afford to take holidays, so they would have stayed on for the full fifty two weeks and just taken scattered days or the weekend off here and there, you know.
3: Yeah, so obviously you've got that increase, but they are looking for you to guarantee a minimum number of hours. And let's say, for example, should a station not attain those minimum number of call-outs, which ideally is the aim of every firefighter, they don't want to have to attend any fire. If, if, If a firefighter didn't reach those 75 hours, is it a case then that they wouldn't then get paid this new guaranteed minimum? No,
7: no. My understanding is it's a minimum guaranteed pay of... So if these guys were to say attain forty nine hours in calls over a calendar year, they wouldn't be docked any wage as a result of not hitting their targets because it's impossible. You can't you don't want to you don't want other uh, other members of the public's misfortune for you to earn, an, earn a wage. Yeah. And that's what we've been fighting for for a long time. We shouldn't be relying on the misfortune of other people to to, to, to provide them that life saving cover. But they wouldn't they
3: wouldn't get call out payments unless they had done more than seventy five hours of call outs over the course of a year.
7: Yeah, yeah, but no. Again, again, my understanding is so once you hit your seventy-five hours, any hours you earn after that, you will be paid for accordingly. So, so basically, they're giving you at the start of the year, you're basically giving a credit of seventy-five hours of calls guaranteed mm. across board.
3: And what's your if own you feeling on that, that offer, Aidan? Does does it feel like it's any way close to being the type of offer that you could possibly see it encouraging uh, new members to join the service?
7: Um. I would reserve uh, my judgment on that for another couple of weeks. I have to commend the National Negotiating Committee to work tirelessly, tirelessly yesterday, along with two. And to be very, very clear, the National Negotiating Committee, they're, they're the ones that are representing the Fire Service Nationwide. And it's based on what their recommendations are that two are putting together a package. You now I know there's a lot of animosity towards CIP2. Um Look... We're like I said before. We're a very, very unique organization, and and it's not it's not like you go into a factory where people work nine to five and they're out on strike and you can deal with it. It's a very, very difficult organization to to try and 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 and, and you know have a strike and 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 work within the parameters, work with what's legal, work with the local um, fire service management. Like the the effort that has gone into try it hasn't been that way across the board. There has been some counties that. Local management and fire service management just wouldn't wouldn't uh, deal with, with some of the negotiating committees. But in Carroll, we we seem to have, for most of it, we seem to have um, the chief fire officer's support, and, and we were able to negotiate for the best part of it to maintain an element of fire cover across the county. It has been a very very difficult, um, traumatic, in some uh, some situations, as you're aware. With Carroll, um, we've we've had a couple of incidents mm. where you know and. It's. It was a very, very difficult. Nobody wants to be in this prime. Nobody wants to be in this. Is it a step in the right direction? I think it is, but that's only my personal opinion. It'll go to a national vote, and it'll be up to the entire county or to the entire country to, to make their own decision. But I think it's a step in the right direction. And if and if the if the additional um, pay increase comes in in the pay talks, which is a clear increase in the retainer, um, now I heard figures being bounced around that the minimum. Guarantee of an income they're looking for for um, a person coming into the fire service, thirty five thousand a year.
3: So Is still, still a way short of that then.
7: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, again, that's just figures that were bounced around. Brian, I couldn't need, I can either confirm or deny that that's the the what they're looking at. But I know there was thirty five thousand. What would would be considered a. Uh, And again, this is going back to your small rural stations. Like a very, very busy station is going to exceed that figure. I am not going to come on the radio and lie to you. They will exceed that figure if you put in the hours. But to to earn that figure, let me be very, very clear: for for a firefighter to earn the maximum amount he can over a fire station, he has to be on twenty four hours a day, seven days of the week, for forty eight weeks of the year. That's guaranteed. Mm. Now you have to ask yourself, and you have to ask members of the public out there. Do you want to be restricted to be in your community for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 48 weeks a year, within a two and a half kilometre radius of the station? I don't think so. So the commitment from the fire the fire service personnel across the country is going to be maintained that, that. You're going to have some firefighters that like a little bit of extra time off, and they will avail of this. It gives the this new proposal gives the opportunity for people to take a bit so a better work-life balance. I don't like that phrase. But that's something that we have to adjust to.
3: And Aidan, just, yep. just finally to wrap up. Yeah. Just finally to wrap up. How obviously long do you think it will be before we're ready to have another vote of members? And can listeners presume that services uh, will operate at their maximum capacity in the interim?
7: The operations is returning to maximum capacity from twelve o'clock noon today. I'm assuming that the full draft copy will come down from WRC next week. Um, CIP2 and the National Negotiating Committee will have I am assuming will have another ballot um, before the end of the month. The results of that ballot will be made public and it will be, be produced back to the LGMA and the WRC if it's accepted or if it's not accepted and then I'm assuming then... Look, I, I have to stay a positive. The, the, the community has to stay a positive. Uh, fire Service Management have to stay a positive. I know it's very very difficult but we have to we have to assume that, that the minister is going to heed our warning and and he he said he's gonna advocate or is he's, he's gonna address our situation at the next pay of talks. And if he's sincere and he puts a reasonable amount of money onto the retainer that we can attract young men and women in this country to join the fire service, I think we'll be happy. And if that isn't done, I think it's gonna revert back to industrial action. We have to save the fire service for the country. And the only way we're going to do that is if, is if, is if there's a minimum guarantee of a, a wage that somebody can live on in a
6: rural station.
3: And Philip Bourne, Kilkenny County Shop Stewart, would you agree with the sentiments expressed by Aidan Owens? I would, yeah. 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 Huge, Hugely interesting for sure. Um, listen, we'll see how things uh, pan out over the weeks ahead. At least movement in the right direction, but a lot more still to be done. Philip Byrne, Kilkenny County Shop Steward, and Aidan Owens, Acting DM at Carlo Fire and Rescue. Thanks for your time this morning. 24 minutes to 11 o'clock. We'll be back after this short break.
0: KCLOR Live, with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo, helping you step out of the sweatpants and into style. See Fairgreen.
1: Welcome back to KCLR Live Una Nibaldani, Brian Redmond with you this morning 083 306 9696 if you want to get in touch about anything that we have been discussing Now we're warming up for local elections next year and an organisation that will be busy from now is See Her Elected Their aim is to support women in public life and Dr Michelle Marr, Programme Manager with See Her Elect joins to tell us about workshops that they're running from September on how to run in local elections Good morning Michelle Good morning. You might take us back a little bit to, I suppose, the beginning of See Her Elected, how you came about and just your overall aims, if you don't mind, Michelle.
8: No, not at all. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about my favourite subject, which is uh, getting more women onto our county councils in rural Ireland. And See Her Elected, I came on board in January 2020 and really the catalyst for i suppose putting the the program together was the 2019 local elections and while overall a quarter of our county councillors are women that figure is skewed a lot by uh the dublin councils where uh, most of the councils are almost at half and half men and women and even the counties around dublin like Louth or Meath, kildare are about a third woman but when you get into your car and head in any direction outside of of Dublin and the surrounding councils. It's a a very, very different story. And uh, down in the southeast, of course, we know that in Carlow, there's only uh, two out of the 18 councillors there are women. And I think down to one now with Andrea on maternity leave, uh, Andrea Wallace. And in Kilkenny, there's only four out of the 24 there. So it was very clear that there needed to be something done uh, at county council level in, in rural Ireland. And that's what See Her Elected set out to do. Um,
1: any idea... Michelle, and I, sorry, just why do you think that is? Why is there such a difference between, I suppose, the urban representation of women and the rural? Is there any one reason or combination of reasons that you've identified...
8: Well, with all these things, there's never one very simple, obvious reason. Because if there was, it would be very easy to solve. I think in rural Ireland, who you are uh, tends to be very important, and people will vote for people that they know, um, and women. Although they're flat out working in their communities, I mean, if you're if you're trying to find women, you're finding them volunteering for anything that's happening and doing all of that heavy lifting at the community level, uh, but they're not. Their, their profile isn't such that they're that they're putting themselves forward uh, to be considered as as county councillors. Now, there's kind of a, a couple of reasons for that. One is, of course, we know that women tend to have the the bulk of caring work within families, uh, which may stop them being part of things uh, that would raise their their profile locally. But women tend to wait to be asked to run for election and when that ask comes it can often come quite late at the day, you know, a month or two or three before the, the local elections, where they have no time to put together any kind of a meaningful campaign. So they're they're not at racist or they're just added onto the ticket as a, a sweeper candidate or as a, a token. So one of the things we're doing in CR Elected is we're asking now and we have been asking since twenty twenty, you know, that you know we, we need more women in on our councils. Uh, so we're asking you to think about it. The other big barrier that I suppose tends to hold women back is you know this you know kind of uh, that we don't know enough about politics and there's a really lovely piece of research that I I, I love to quote and it's um, about how um, it proved that men express overconfidence in the skills that they have and have even been known to express confidence in skills that they they don't have at all whereas women will tend to hold back from putting themselves forward for anything unless they're certain that they have a hundred percent of the skills necessary and there's this kind of default position that a lot of women adopt as seeing others as as better qualified and i think and of course for those Sorry, go.
1: Sorry, Michelle. I was going to say that I think nowhere in life do you need to have a thick skin and a self-confidence, whether it's deserved Indeed. or not, than you do in politics. And I think one of the problems is we throw so much abuse the way of politicians, all of mm-hmm. us, hands up, I do it myself on occasion, that really it, it sometimes isn't that attractive for anybody unless you're really ready to drive through and not listen to that or not let it affect you. And men tend yeah, to be definitely. better at that than women, I think, to generalise, but... Generalizations
8: are yeah. often true. Yeah, yeah, they are. And I mean, um, I think with the confidence that you know what you're talking about and that you're well qualified to put yourself forward as a candidate to be considered for election for a county council, you know, that confidence um, w- will help you deal with the uh, with the, the the level of questioning and disregard for you know for politics in general that that we perhaps all by default uh, tend to fall into and um i suppose <clears throat> that's one of the things that the there's uh, a task force being set up um in the by the house directors the can the or sean or and i mean sometimes i kind of throw my eyes up to heaven when i hear about a task force or a report being commissioned because to me that's more talking about doing something instead of actually doing something but there is a task force being put together uh, to kind of look at this whole area and put forward firm proposals for legislation to to make politics uh, a safer environment for both men and women to be in.
1: And the aim of that is I suppose to stamp out some of the abuse that does tend to happen in political circles. One thing that that does raise my curiosity Michelle is the fact that we Mm -hmm. lag so terribly far behind I think we're 98th from what I could glean from the internet. We're 98th in terms of female representation. We have introduced national, to the national elections, gender quotas that is making mm-hmm. some difference. But why are we behind countries like China, like Iraq? What what has happened traditionally that puts us in that position and what continues to happen?
8: Yeah, well, well the barriers that I, I, I spoke of about that, that um, our political parties um, are slow to ask women or to promote women internally um, or to see them and encourage them to see themselves as viable candidates. Our electoral system, of course, should in theory help us because with multi-seat constituencies, uh, that should be of benefit to women. Um, But I think a lot of it comes from that fact that, you know, by and large, women aren't getting themselves in the frame of mind to be candidates for local elections well in advance of the local elections. And that's what we're trying to to change in See Her Elected. In other countries, of course, they have different electoral systems. Some of them have um, like a list system where you vote for a political party and then that political party will allocate seats from a list. And some political parties are required to alternate men and women on those lists and in other countries you have to reserve seats for minority groups and people from different ethnicities. So there there are different electoral systems that could be tweaked to, to bring more diversity into our, our politics. Which, do you think you know, we need to do arguably, that? That we need
1: to introduce further tweaks beyond the the quotas? Um,
8: I, I would think, um, well, I think what we're doing in See Her Elected in that we're trying to, what we're doing is we're, we're asking women now, we're still nine months out from the, the next local elections, is to, you know, to, to think about putting yourself forward, like women are well capable of being in there and the kind of supports that are available for you i mean i in my innocence when i started out thought that you could rock up to your local library and take out a book which would tell you how to run for election Uh, it didn't exist so we we had to write it and we've made it free for everyone to download from our, our website and we have workshops that go with that guidebook. So, so tell us um, what might happen in the so
1: workshop if you don't mind, Michelle. Just briefly before I let you go. Yeah. What What would happen? What yeah. would I learn if I went along to one of those workshops?
8: Well, the very first thing that you would learn at a workshop is, um, you know, the basics of who you need about you. You know, you need to have a campaign manager. You might need to have a strategist, somebody who can smell the air politically and can can help you out with that. But there are kind of three main parts of your campaign strategy uh, that we would help you put together. You know, there's the, the canvassing part of it. There's the whole communication and raising your profile so that people know who you are and what you stand for and why they should vote for you and then the social media part of that as well and they all feed into a campaign strategy. So you would get um, help with that month by month, week by week, from now right through to the the local elections. And that's the kind of level of support that, that we get. But I think the county councils themselves are, are trying to do something as well. I know that in Carlo County Council, um, it, coming up in October, and I'm sure they'll be happy to come on and talk about it, they're, they're uh, doing something with the Public Participation Network to try and draw even voters' attention to the fact that having... A council that's all men or indeed all women is not good it's about getting the balance right so that the the valuable knowledge that men and women equally have from just living their lives in kilkenny or carlo that that's feeding into county council decision making making and i know that the four female councillors in kilkenny are working with the council to try and do something um in kilkenny as well because I, i think even as voters it's this isn't about women being better than men or, or men being better than women. It's about having a council that has that knowledge of men and women equally feeding into it. Mm-hmm. And it, it isn't knowledge that comes from some kind of a fancy political degree. It's knowledge that just comes from living your life, you know? And that's, and it gives you a very invaluable perspective when it comes to making decisions around the council chamber. And I, I often wonder. Would men tolerate it if it was the other way around? There's only ever been one or two or three female councillors in in Carlo, for example. You know, and, you know, if it was the other way around, you know, would the men of Carlo and, and quite justifiably, I would have to say, would they be saying, well, what about us? You know, we live here, too, and we have something valuable to contribute here. So it's about getting... You know getting the popular you know getting the county council to look like the population that it represents yes. we're not all men uh, um, and some of us live with disabilities some of us have moved here from elsewhere and we all have a, a valuable perspective and if that is all feeding into decision making at the county council level then the decisions coming out of your county council could only be all the better for that
1: do you think you're on the ground you're close to people who may go for election do you feel positive Mm -hmm. about the prospect of more representation next year post-election there were increases in the last one i know but maybe not as much as one would have liked do you think that's going to change next time around
8: yeah i do i i think um programs like see her elected and there's valuable work being done as well by other organizations you know to 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 try and, you know, first of all, get more people registered to vote. And I think it's great now that, you know, any 18-year-old in the country can just pick up their phone and once they know their, their PPS number and their air code, they can register to vote in seconds. And there's quite a big. I think you even had an advertisement there uh, before your show started about registering to vote or it was on the news, your news bulletin. So I think that's great to try
1: I think we've lost, Michelle.
8: The yeah, election's coming up. Hello?
1: We lost you there for a second, Michelle. Sorry, you're back. Um, I, your pardon. I your pardon. Not to worry, the line might be gone a little bit dodgy, but listen, tell us just briefly, we have the your first work, uh, workshop is starting on the 18th of September. How can people find more information about them and, and the ones to follow?
8: You can find that everything on our website. It's the easiest just to look at ie. Okay. The line isn't
1: great, so I'll just give it on Michelle's behalf. It is selected.ie. You can get all the details on the workshops that are coming up. If a little bit of local representation takes your fancy, 083 If you want to get in on this chat, we're going to take a short break.
0: KCL or live With thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo With a fantastic range of shops, food outlets And a state-of-the-art IMC cinema See fairgreen.ie
3: KCLR.
9: KCLR.
3: You're very welcome back to KCLR Live. Seven minutes to 11 o'clock this morning. Text and WhatsApp lines 083-306-9696. That's the dinner's ready contact line. And you've been using it in your droves to get your entries in for our Heritage Week competition. Today, to celebrate Heritage Week, we gave away we've well, we gave away one, which we're going to do now. We've got another one for the next hour. Um, a family heritage gift card, um, thanks to uh, all of the good people at the... OPW, and the person who correctly identified our heritage site for the first hour as being Carlo Castle was Anne Marie Sweeney, um, and she's in Higg- Huguenstown. Uh, congratulations to Anne Marie. I hope you enjoy all things OPW and unfortunately in other sad news reaching us here just in the last few minutes broadcaster Sir Michael Parkinson has passed away at the age of 88 his family have confirmed his TV career spanned 7 decades and he interviewed the world's biggest stars on his long running chat show Um, certainly was one of my favourite interviewers of all time Zuna Uh, would you have been a Parky fan?
1: Yeah he was super I mean some of his interviews if you watch him, how he went from the beginning of it to the end of it so seamlessly with such, you know, good humor and also getting in really great questions. He was, he was excellent. Very sad news.
3: Let's have a listen to him here at his pomp and ceremony best, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Michael Parkinson. Here's a line I never thought I'd ever say. It's 50 years since I first went into a TV studio. I never thought I'd live that long, to be frank. And <laughs> here we are celebrating, if that be the word, stamina at least, to exist for as long as that. Also, another celebration, too, which kind of uh, struck me, or to something earlier, but when I was writing my book, this is the 50th anniversary of being married to Lady Mary Parkinson. Ah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> nice thing about being knighted, you get to sleep with a lady. he was just brilliant so self-deprecating never sort of put himself above the guest it's uh, never
1: and like a beautiful voice and just a, a smart man, wasn't he? like The way he conducted an interview was amazing. One of my all time favourites was the late, great Gay Byrne as well. And I actually thought they were kind of similar in the way that they just controlled what they were doing so terribly well.
3: Yeah, they were definitely, from my understanding and researching them and looking at them on, on, on TV shows and indeed Gay and on radio, uh, they both totally controlled their environments completely yeah but yet handed that environment over to the guests to let it be their world for you know and our Parkinson did some very long form interviews particularly on the TV show you know one guest for 20, 25 half an hour nobody could handle that and today. not
1: always easy like some of them do go a little bit pear shaped but he never looked like I would look if I were in that situation with that little bit of oh my god I only saw going. him get
3: flustered once what was the interview Rod Hull and Emu when Rod Hull and Emu absolutely did their thing and and went uh, and that, that was more a physical assault I think yes, more yeah, than yeah. anything else but sad news reaching us this morning that Michael Parkinson 88 years of age has passed away um, I'm sure lots of our listeners will have thoughts and fondnesses to remember about Michael Parkinson um, keep them coming into us actually if you want to tell us your favourite Parkinson story 083 306 9696 one of the things we've been doing all week long trying to give away some money it's worth 100 euros this week is this the Volkswagen ID
0: Sound on KCL or with thanks to the ID ID range of electric vehicles at La Volkswagen Kilkenny. Visit laherts.ie.
3: It's a short little clip. It's a difficult one, but here it is. That's what we're asking you to identify. If you can work out what you think that might be. Text us or WhatsApp us 083 306 9696. The Volkswagen ID sound still annoying people all over Kilkenny and Carlow. If we don't get it today or tomorrow, it'll be worth €200 on Monday.
0: The Volkswagen ID Sound on KCLR. With thanks to the ID range of electric vehicles at Lahertz Volkswagen Kilkenny. Visit lahertz.ie.
3: Just thinking, Una, you know, thinking about Parkinson and uh, those longer form interviews that he did. Do you think the Irish public, the public, the global public have the attention span for somebody like that ever to come to the fore again or has the world of Instagram shorts and 8 second videos completely destroyed people's attention spans?
1: I think it's completely destroyed our attention span. Like that length of an interview, I don't think I could sit through it myself.
3: Yeah, yeah. But well, I, I so? could certainly watch Parkinson doing it. That is for sure.
0: KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre, Carlo, with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets, and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema.
10: See Fairgreen.ie.
3: Thank you very much, Edwina. I presume you were a Parkinson fan.
10: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think I, I still have a book belonging to John Walsh. So say nothing, because he hasn't looked for that back yet. But uh, he will be uh, yeah, tomorrow morning. Fan. Yeah, huge fan. I huge know John
3: Walsh. Walsh is a fan of his as yeah. well. I mean. It's just a fabulous, fabulous interviewer, wasn't he?
10: He was, but he was so natural. There was nothing contrived about him. I don't think he always came across as I just know. being himself. You know?
3: I, I don't you know. I heard a couple of stories. I think he was a nice guy. I think that's the most important thing. When you say nothing contrived about him, I do understand he was very fond of taking guests for a meal. And a few drinks the night before the show, and you know, trying to encourage tongues to loosen a little bit to give them a little yeah, bit of insight before I, the interview. I
10: don't see that as contrived. I see that as research. <laughs> you know, well, anyone we'll, in the game will t- will tell you that you'll get more out of somebody uh, uh, across a bar or across a, a dining table. They'll 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 talk to you a little bit more freely. But uh, no, I, I he always struck me as somebody who was very fair. Um, you know, he's a lovely way with people. I think um, and that that that's not always the easiest thing i think everyone assumes that it's it's a natural thing that comes very naturally to everybody it doesn't um and I, and i think he was a very good entertainer and informer you know and i i think it's a loss to to the industry clearly as, as well as his family, his friends and his fans, you know.
3: And he certainly moved the times over mm. his career because he was equally as comfortable interviewing politicians and, and global Absolutely. leaders back in the 50s and 60s as he was interviewing people like Ali G and the turn of the century.
10: But you see, I don't think he was swayed by this modern idea of fame and celebrity, you know, everyone was the same, mm. you know like if he met myself and yourself Brian you know he wouldn't be swayed by your obvious uh, celebrity status <laughs> oh, and stop. me as the on the ground uh, local but but you know what I mean he no, treated, I think just he like treated everyone and the same yeah, exactly yeah, he, he d- liked people and he was um, a really good conduit of um, and really able to get everyone to talk be they politician or Like I said, the ordinary joss up on the the street. You know, he was he was. It's it's very sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll be
3: I'll be spending I think some time this evening looking at old YouTube clips of uh, Parkinson, great Parkinson interviews.
10: That twinkle in his eye (laughs) when he saw my TV. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
3: that that twinkle can get you a long way sometimes. And uh, John Walsh, if you're listening and you're looking for that Parkinson book. We know where it is. Edwina Grace has it. Thanks Edwina, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It is 7 minutes past 11.
0: KCL or live. With thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlow with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state of the art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie.
3: Now Heritage Week continues and indeed our competitions to celebrate and mark Heritage Week also continue. This Day, We have a slightly new type of prize. A very special prize, in fact, because we've got two Family Heritage gift cards to give away. We've already given away one in the first hour, but not to worry if you missed out. We've got another one to give away for this hour. They're from the OPW and give you access to OPW sites right across the country. They can be purchased from OPW sites right across the country or indeed online. Um, And we have four to give away. We've given away one already this morning, one more in the next hour, and we'll give away two tomorrow. But all you have to do to be in with the chance of winning that OPW site access pass is have a listen to this clue from Aetna and identify this heritage site that she's talking about.
2: built between 1594 and 1610 and located on Kilkenny's medieval mile my three stories are connected by cobbled courtyards what am I
1: 083 If you think you know what Ethna is talking about and you want to be in with the shout for that lovely OPW Heritage card. Now, we've been treated all week long to fantastic speakers who are participating in Heritage Week, and today is no exception. We're delighted to be joined in studio by Louise Marr and Grace Feegan. Uh, Louise, you're an archivist. I was asking you earlier, <laughs> is it an archivist or an archival consultant?
11: Both, they're the same. Uh, I suppose a uh, company set up as Louise Marr Archival Consultant. Tell us what that involves. Um, so I I'm an archivist by trade, and um, I look at historical records and put them into um an order that will make them more. I suppose research friendly and um, so the last collection I, s- I would have worked on would have been one of the 1916 leaders in Enniscorti, um, Seamus Doyle and it was a collection for uh, Wexford County Council but it's just to look through all his personal belongings and to put them into a c- chronological order or a, a category um, based order with artefacts and books and his personal writings and just make sure that they're all logged um and all available for researchers for public consumption yeah. so is that what happens
1: typically a county councilor some such body would approach you and ask you to do a particular body of work
11: yes yes um or even um it could be a private collection um of an estate um or even your own collection (laughs) you can you can put it in if you think that there's something historical um, or interesting or important that you want to keep um, and have it Ready for research, um. Then it's just to it's to just really organise it. Um. It's a nice, handy kind of. It's a lovely job because you is. have such
1: a great variety. I would imagine of of things that you end up working on or, or researching. Completely. Which brings us to your talk, um, that you're doing on water pumps in County Carlow.
11: Yes. So I um through a different project, um, and, and talks I got in contact, um, with, uh, Owen Sullivan, the heritage officer in County Carlow, and he was, uh, talking about the project and it was it straight away caught my interest because growing up we would have had a water pump at the end of our cul-de-sac um, and it would always be meet you by the pump or it was meeting place and um, so when I heard of the project I said of course I'm interested so um, only last month I got awarded the contract and since then we've been going around a uh, County Carlo, um, for in places I never even Knew existed in County Carlow, just uh, looking um, for water pumps where, um, where they would be um, with the pump still in place and even just the walls um, that would have housed the water pumps just to record them all for, for the uh, heritage because effect. I'm sure some
1: of them have been removed long since
11: unfortunately there's a lot that have been removed um, and these some could have been removed by the county council themselves or during planning for uh, new buildings um, but some disappeared overnight and never to be seen again until Until you pass a garden and you're like oh that looks
1: familiar (laughs) but isn't it lovely when you see them in use I know that in Clare there was a a what do you call them the Tidy Towns Committee and they got one up and running and they use it to water all the plants around the area and I think that is a fantastic use of something so beautiful that speaks to the history of the area isn't it
11: Exactly and it is beautiful if you can see them all completely intact um, and if they are working which is great and the Tidy Towns Committees um, across the county I have to say uh, have helped in, in my project because they their pumps stand out. Uh, they're lovely, painted, fresh and they have flowers around them and you can notice them and then other pumps, you're going down the road and you could have travelled the road for six years, and as one of my friends had said, and never seen the pump before. It's painted black, it's Kind of uh, hidden in by all the hedges, and you just wouldn't see it when you're passing by. So it's um it's really interesting to for the tidy towns to just keep to their do going. that, and they do keep. I, I love the fact that they're in use, but even as you say, they make them look beautiful. They're yes. a really decorative piece, and there would be so much social history attached to those pumps, wouldn't there? Exactly. So as I've been going around the county, um, I'm trying to see the people that uh, live beside these pumps and get a few stories from them, and the stories are even uh, there'll be another interesting project that will come out of, of this I'm sure um, because any that you'd like to share with us this morning any good tale um <laughs> There's been so much like so some families, most families say how uh, clean and how um, tasty and cold that the water always always was, no matter whether it was spring, summer or winter. Um, and then also um, the fighting that used to happen every morning um, of whose turn it was to go down and get the water because as you can imagine, it it's wasn't an easy task and it's, I know I'd be fighting with my sister <laughs> it's going, no, it's definitely your turn there today but um others would have been saying that um, a woman from my ICA group um, she would have said that uh, her husband um was always trying to get the water into the house and because they had four young children and they were trying to uh, get water from the pump every evening and make sure they had it for the morning for the babies and the bottles. And she said that one evening he went up to get the water and the pump was gone. And then he came back down going, there's no pump, there's no water, and to co- contacted the county council and the council started to blame him. And he was like, no, 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 It wasn't me. So it was just uh, very interesting because I suppose... They, there was the need for the pump but then they wanted to progress for um have uh, their own mains to their house and But what happened in that situation because they were cast iron
1: I'm assuming the vast majority of yes. them which would not be easy to lift out and, and take off if that's what happened
11: And that's exactly what happened and even uh, going through the county I've We've covered about thirty percent of the county's roads, and we've located sixty-eight um, locations for pumps. And on those of those sixty-eight, only forty-eight have actual pumps there, and the twenty remain have no pumps. But y- you can see that it was just unbolted from the ground and carried away. Um, so it's it's happened all over the county, and I'm sure all over all counties of Ireland, it pumps just but some of them were probably removed by councils would you say so in in the likes of um carlo town for buildings and that they would have been removed and even in um fenna um i was talking to the local improvements group there and they said that the pump was removed for um a telephone box to be put in and then <laughs> then when the telephone box was uh, taken out and obsolete um then the Tidy Towns Committee put in a pump again. So it's, it's all gone. As a decorative piece. Well, as a decorative piece. Yeah, well, so it all goes uh,
1: well, full We're,
3: we're going to move from things that have been coming out of the ground to, to <laughs> people that look at digging holes in the ground. And it just testifies to the diversity of Heritage Week because also joining us in the studio this morning is uh, Grace Vegan. She's the Senior Archaeologist with Shan Rack, Archaeology, um, and they're looking at uh, the John's Well, the Holy Wells survey. Um, hopefully, you've got an event coming up as well, where you've got people coming along to share their own thoughts on stories from that site as well. Tell us first of all about your role um, in archaeology and, and how you got involved.
12: Well, yeah, I'm I'm an archaeologist for the last few years <clears throat> um, since leaving college. Yeah, I've been working in development led. Uh, archaeology for over 20 years. I'm working with Shanark now, uh, a local uh, Clikennie based company and we basically provide services for developers and for other agencies who need to maintain their compliance with planning and so on. So they might get a, a, a condition in their planning permission that an archaeological assessment needs to take place or testing needs to be done or a geophysical survey needs to be done because there might be archaeology in the area that might be affected by that mm. development. So we, we do that work. We take care of that work for them. And
3: and, and t- taking us back to that starting point, you know, if, if a developer is looking to develop a, a couple of fields in, mm. into a new housing estate, who makes the call as to this might be the type of site where we need to bring in um, somebody like Shanark or, listen, lads, you can just start digging away, there's no problem.
12: It's 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 in the, at the planning stage, so there'll be uh, the the planners in the county councils, or there's archaeologists that work for the National Monument Service, and they review those planning applications. And it always it, it'll often come back to the mapping. And we're so lucky in Ireland, really. We've just got such fantastic Ordnance Survey maps and records of what we know is out there. So they will review the location, and they'll decide what's what needs to happen so that the archaeology and the heritage is protected.
3: Okay, well, give us an update on what's going on then up at the Kilkenny Holy Well survey.
12: Yeah, we were commissioned by uh, by Regina Fitzpatrick, the Kilkenny Heritage Officer, to do this uh, survey of holy wells across the county. Um, so it's part funded by the Heritage Council and Kilkenny County Council. And there's approximately I think, 150, 160 recorded holy wells. So, what is a holy kingdom? well?
3: Is a holy well yeah. different in some way, shape, or form to a normal well?
12: Well, it's basically, it can be a spring. It can be a well, it can be some sort of water source that somebody has attached a kind of a spiritual association to. So some of them are really elaborate. Um, like the, the the well in, in, in John's Well in Kilkenny. I mean, it's, there's a structure there. There's kind of pools, you know, outside. It's like a little park. It's mm. really pretty. And some of them will have known saints attached to them. And then others are literally a little puddle or a wet patch <laughs> in a field. Um, but that at some time in the past, uh, maybe would have been visited on a certain day, would have had certain Curative powers associated with it People believing that you know, it would be good for your eyesight to take the water away. Or It's amazing. It's just fascinating. It's, all the different wells have kind of their own character. And um, having
3: 150 of them approximately in, yeah. in Kilkenny, would that be unusual across the country? It, it sounds like, I mean, if you multiply that up across all of the counties, yeah. that sounds like a, a huge number of, of these potential sites.
12: It's amazing. And it, it almost kind of ties in with the number of parishes. Okay, You know, that there would be at least one in each parish. Um, But what is interesting about about the Kilkenny Wells and the survey that we're doing is we're realising that there's 112 of them where we know their location. We know where they are and they have some sort of information about them and the other 40 odd they're recorded, but we don't know where they are. So this is kind of the crux of the survey and the event on Saturday. We're asking people to help us out if if they know of a well on their land or a well in their locality, um, that maybe their granny remembers you know to go visit on a certain day of the year. That they let us know that, mm. and then we can. See if we know what where that well is, if that's one of the recorded locations, or whether it's a new well that nobody knew, relatively <laughs> new well.
3: Well, what's, what's a relatively new well? well We're not in, talking about last Tuesday.
12: Yeah, no, I mean, they would be ancient. They would be ancient and venerated for hundreds of years, possibly, but the location has gone missing or it's not on the mapping or... It's, you know,
3: And could yeah. that be tied in with, you know, maybe changes in the water table, for example, that maybe some of these wells have literally just dried up?
12: That's it. And yeah, what we noticed from the survey, the, the field work that we've been doing is that, yeah, uh, uh, you know, water can be diverted for various purposes for development or, or whatever. And, uh, yeah, some of the wells just dry up and a um, lot, but their location that's the idea of the survey, that we will always know where they have been and that information and those traditions and stuff won't be lost uh, even if the well, the water is gone. Yeah, so you know, it's you're inflated. asking
3: people that might have spoken knowledge yeah. uh, to try and come and share it with you and it be, can become part of something that's archived um, and recorded and, and, and therefore won't be lost again. When's the um, actual event taking place and, and, and how can people pop along?
12: It's on Saturday at 230 at the Holy Well in John's Well, which is right uh, 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 in the middle of the village there across from Benin's pub. So we're going to be there. We're going to let people know about our survey and we'll be giving people access to this fantastic resource, the Heritage Maps resource available online for everybody to access. Uh, and we'll be asking people if they have stories or, or, or information about possible sites to let us know and we'll be able to consult the mapping with them and See if it's a known site or if it's a, a new site.
3: Greg Sveenan, senior archaeologist uh, with uh, Shanrock Archaeology. Thanks, really, really interesting topic.
12: And actually, I should have given
1: you that opportunity, Louise. I'm sure you're looking to hear from people as well as to where they think
11: pumps might have been.
1: How exactly. can they contact
11: you? Yeah, if they can contact me, um, there is an Instagram page set up. It's at Carlo Village Water Pumps, or indeed, um, there's an email address at our. Carlo Village Water Pumps at gmail and they can send um, locations or stories or um, to me or pictures or anything at all. Yes. Super.
1: Well, Louise Moore, archivist, and Grace Fegan, archaeologist, it has been an absolute pleasure. We're going to take a short break.
0: KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre, Carlo helping you step out of the sweatpants and into style. See fairgreen.ie
1: now it's water, water everywhere because on this week's Hours to Protect, Ethna continues a conversation with environmental consultant Jack O'Sullivan, who has some interesting thoughts on urine.
0: Hours to Protect, brought to you by KCL or the IBI and funded by Kamishina Man with a television licence fee. Check out ourstoprotect.ie for more information.
2: Jack, one of the organisations that you're very involved with is Zero Waste Alliance Ireland. Will you tell me a little bit about what that organisation does and your own involvement with it?
13: Well, it's a great little organisation. It's quite small. It's a non-government environmental organisation. It formed in 1999 when a number of communities around the country who had been protesting about existing landfills, flies, rats, smoke, smells, wind-blown litter, etc., came together in Athlone and said, let's form a kind of an alliance, a group, a network. That was set up in 1999. In 2003, it was registered as a not-for-profit company. In 2004, we obtained a charitable status, and we've been going ever since. I'm one of four directors. We have about 30 members, but we're quite different from the big organizations like Friends of the Earth and Antashka and so on. Firstly, we concentrate on waste, but that doesn't mean just litter and rubbish. Waste of water, waste of resources, waste of electricity, waste power. Uh, We're currently putting in a submission into the government today on the huge amounts of waste created by people using what we call vapes or vaping cigarettes or e-cigarettes. But we've also made it one of our key activities To respond to public consultations by the government on any issue related to misuse of resources. For example, we waste soil in Ireland. How do we do that? We destroy soil by running heavy machinery over it, not taking care of it properly. And as a result, our farming is being affected badly by that. So there's an awful lot of waste. We waste huge amounts of food. Another crazy thing that we do. Now, other countries do the same, but we could look after our own uneaten and discarded food much better. One of the things we did, by the way, in Zero Waste Alliance, Ireland, is we bought a food waste composter. And it's working away, it's in an experimental stage, and we're trying to do some work with it. another of our practical projects is utilization of human urine, which is extraordinarily rich in phosphorus. Now, phosphorus is a great fertilizer, and we import lots of it. But what do we do with the phosphorus in human urine? We throw it away. We put it into the sewage works, and it ends up going down the river and out into the sea. So a lot of these issues are being are on our plate as what kind of things we do. And we're looking for members, by the way.
2: Okay, so just reverse there for a minute. So what could we be doing with human urine?
13: Okay. One of my colleagues, a man named Olin Hare, he's a good scientist, he has a process in which human urine, you add magnesium salts to it, magnesium sulfate, Epsom salts, and this causes the phosphorus to react to the magnesium and to precipitate out as a white powdery stuff. You now filter that, dry it, and you've got a white powder that contains magnesium, which is an essential plant nutrient, and phosphorus, which is an essential plant nutrient as well, and that can be used in horticulture it can be used as a, as a soil additive. It can be used as a fertilizer. So that's a very simple system. So a huge but room for y- in
2: our thinking then, Jack, isn't there?
13: There is. And one of the things that all in hair has convinced me, if I didn't know it already as a biologist, is that human urine is actually very clean stuff. It comes out of your kidneys. And unless the person who is producing this urine has an infection, it's actually free of bacteria. It's not like your stools or your feces, which are very rich in bacteria and which have to be uh, dealt with in a way that they never come in contact with human beings. In other words, it has to be sent to the sewage works and um, treated and so on. But urine is actually a valuable stuff which you're throwing away. And it's clean. Extraordinary when you think about it.
2: Fascinating. So, Jack, one of the things you mentioned there is that you're on the on the hunt for new members. So, tell us if people want to get involved with the um, Zero Waste Alliance Ireland group. Where can they find some more information?
13: I will tell you exactly. We have a website, Zero Waste Alliance Ireland. It's www.zwai.ie. And when you go onto that website, you will find we have an administrator named Orla. Her email address is admin at zwai.ie. And if you write to her, she sends you out a membership form and you fill in that, you pay 20 euro, and you are a member. And we like members to actually do some work as well. It's not just paying your 20 euro and uh, forgetting about and being forgotten about. Every time there's work to be done, Orla, as our admin person, will write out to all the members saying, We're going to advocate or propose to the government that, let's say for example, plastic waste should be dealt with much better, or every shop should have a plastic place where you can deposit all your plastic instead of bringing it to um, to the local community center or putting it in your bin. And when we get some members who then respond, we assemble a team, we write a report, a submission, that goes to the Department of the Environment, Climate and Communications, or to the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government. And hopefully we make some kind of an input and we're one of the organisations advocating change for the better.
2: Brilliant. Exactly what we like to hear on ours to protect. Jack O'Sullivan, Environmental Consultant, thank you so much for your time this morning and no doubt we'll be in touch with you again during the course of the project. Thank you so much, Jack.
13: Thank you you very much, Esther. Nice talk with you.
2: You too. Take care. Thanks a million. Hours to Protect
0: is funded by Commission Laman with a television licence fee and is a partnership between KCLR and the Independent Broadcasters of Ireland. Check out ouristoprotect.ie for more information.
1: Producer Etna Quirk continuing her conversation there with Jack O'Sullivan, environmental consultant. Now, don't forget, you've still got time to text in your guests. If you think you can identify this site, you're in with a chance of winning a family heritage gift card. So, this hour's clue is coming up.
2: Built between 1594 and 1610 and located on Kilkenny's medieval mile three stories are connected by cobbled courtyards What am I?
3: Yes, get your entries in. Oh 306 9696. You can text or WhatsApp us. If you can identify that heritage site, you will be in with a chance of picking up that OPW site access card. Brought to us by our good friends at the OPW. Um, I wanted to read out this message as well. A very heartfelt message from a, a dog owner. It says uh, it came into us on our reception number. And actually, I was looking through KCLR's website yesterday. There's a, there's a very good page on KCLR's website for reconnecting owners with their pets if you're ever looking for a missing pet do, do a little bit of a search on there and find it but we're asking this morning to see if we can help find Ollie Ollie is a male golden retriever he's missing from the lower Grange area between Goran and Gores Bridge um, Ollie is microchipped and if you do come across a golden retriever who's looking for a bit of company or just seems to be on his own somewhere do give us a text or WhatsApp on 083 306 9696 uh, you couldn't imagine being a Away from your dog, could you, Una?
1: They actually, those stories make me feel so upset because I just think the poor owner, particularly if there are kids in the house would be so stressed out without their little pet not knowing where where he or she is so I hope that story ends well for whoever is involved in that one and talking
3: about pets and their owners and indeed the magic of social media we can do some good things Uh, listeners to the show yesterday will have heard us speaking to uh, the National Reptile Zoo and they brought a little friend in for us to meet a milk snake um, that they said they had originally named Glambia when they received it well We'd post up. I'd post up on my Instagram page yesterday, and lo and behold, the person who actually owned that particular snake um, made contact with me. They said it was listening to the show yesterday. That snake was actually our snake. We donated him to the National Reptile Zoo uh, when the, the woman of the house was pregnant and expecting their first child. And we were wondering about the name of the snake, but Una, I found out what Glamby's original name was.
11: Okay. Are
1: you going to share it?
3: I am, yeah. Yeah, because okay. I'm good like that. Nero, apparently, was the original name for the little milk snake that we had in studio yesterday. Just goes to show that sometimes social media can do good things.
1: It can. And actually, your video was lovely. I was quite taken by how comfortable you looked with that snake, I must say.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think it's about the second or third time I, I've spoken to the guys from the National Reptile Zoo over the last three or four years. And they always bring us a little treat along. Um, but yeah maybe I was just feeling a little bit motherly yesterday I think
1: you were Brian because you looked like you had a little baby and you compared <laughs> it to a little baby it did
3: yeah yeah it was like it, it seemed to get quite comfortable in my arms
1: it did it did or she but
3: did there you go <laughs> Nero. <laughs> um, talking about somebody else who's not quite comfortable um, is Anne Neary from Ryland Cookery School she'll be joining us after this short break
0: KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie.
3: KCLR. KCLR. You're very welcome back to KCLR Live with Brian and the this morning. 23 minutes to, uh, to 12 o'clock this Thursday, the 17th of August. Uh, joined in studio by Anne Neary from Royal & Cookery School. Good morning, Anne. How are you? I'm really good. I'm back to you
9: again, like,
0: for, a, for a short visit.
3: I'm disappointed, Anne. Why are you disappointed? Because they said... I to see you I know, I know. They said to me, "Lasagna, Anne." I thought, "Oh, the mix of Anne and lasagna is going to be the perfect preparation for the build-up to Thursday lunchtime." Yes, got, it's lasagna with vegetables, Anne. You just—I
9: oh. know, Brian. There are vegetarians out there, you know. They're, they're not all carnivorous, <laughs> as you can imagine. So, Absolutely. yeah, and, and they and they sort of love this as well. But, well, I, I've got to make a
3: little confession before I let you start. Mm. I actually am disappointed from a position whereby I'm not entitled to speak on this because I don't think I've ever actually tried vegetable lasagna. I just go... What yeah. do
1: you say on the I salad? have had it and I love it. it and is, yeah. you know what I always think and that even in like your regular lasagna, I'd love more veg. Like you could bulk it out with a bit of veg, yes, instead of ah, No, it's just a,
3: you don't put veg in a lasagna. You have oh, your lasagna and you. you put a bit of salad on the side, a the bit of a balsamic p- a bowl, yeah.
9: Yeah, the tree. And you know what as well? When I'm doing lasagna, I always use half pork, half beef. I never use all beef. It's Why is that? Because it's too I find the uh, beef cooked like that is very sort of condensed I yeah. suppose is the word so would you
3: get a pork mince and a pork mince Yes. Yeah. so
9: say I'd use half pound of pork mince and a half pound of oh. um, now you're
3: talking mince. but listen let's get back to the <laughs> <Well, laughs> vegetable lasagna for today you,
9: can we just ask first do you put veg into your regular lasagna I don't no Chill. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. I just like my veg. I like my lasagna to be my lasagna. And then you want your salad like <laughs> Brian. I want like my Ryan. veg. Just, stop laughing <laughs> over there. You're be Yeah, Because we're, I'm saying exactly what he wants to say. No, I just like. My, and then I like to serve a baked potato with it. And I love a lovely big green meat make- okay, salad. Okay. Forget the other veggies.
1: That's gas Because I would love the peppers, the mushrooms and less meat. Really? But anyway, let's go with the vegetarian <laughs> one because that's the one I'm
9: going to make. <laughs>
1: She's
3: the boss. Come on, <laughs> right. Anne, give it Come to on. us. Vegetable there, lasagna. There go.
9: OK, red peppers, get two of those, two onions, courgettes. There's two of all those. An aubergine. And you cut that into one centimetre, about a half centimetre thick, sort of just like a coin thick, I suppose. And then a couple of cloves of garlic, three to four tablespoons of olive oil, you don't have to use the best olive oil in the house but use something good okay and a couple of cans of tomatoes now as you know I'm a real advocate for uh, Mutti tomatoes I think they're just amazing They're for what I know, tomatoes Mutti M-U-T-T-I they're okay. an Italian tomato now they're, very, they're much more expensive than the normal ones but the flavour is just unbelievable
3: remind me to come back to tomatoes when Anne's finished her recipe
9: Tomato. tomatoes well yeah. actually just
1: on that brand they do passata as well don't they, they and don't. it's a superior quality I 100% yeah, agree with you it is yeah, worth it the is extra absolutely dime.
9: beautiful yes and we need a couple of t- t- uh, tablespoons of tomato puree and the tomato puree can be again from, from, from Mooty if you want to one to two tablespoons of basil, 300 grams of lasagna sheets and uh, 12 ounces of mozzarella, 125 grams of mozzarella. It can be ma- uh, mozzarella, parmesan, cheddar all mixed together. It just could be just mozzarella. I don't like mozzarella zones too stringy when I yeah. pull it apart. So I like to put actually my favorite is parmesan and cheddar, white cheddar and a good quality parmesan, the Parmigiano reggiano. That is the one. Right. Okay. The white sauce is 85 grams of butter, 85 grams of plain flour and 750 uh, mils of milk. So all of that together. You want the sauce to be nice and thin as well. And you want the layers to be kind of thin because the thing about it is that with a vegetable lasagna, they'll be a little thicker than if you were making a beef lasagna. Okay. I like a couple of layers of, I don't like this, Chunk of beef in the middle when I'm making a beef one, but when I'm making the vegetable ones, the vegetables are that little bit chunkier, so they will be that little bit sort Thicker, of higher yeah, on it. Yeah. Okay, can I just stop you on the sauce
1: for a second? I need step by step instructions. And are you someone that likes to throw all your ingredients in and gently stir, or do you, you start with the butter and flour? You can either way, it doesn't matter. Is there a Joe, you know what happens to me? I put in whatever way I do it either by putting it all in or else starting with the butter or flour I say oh my god this just isn't going to be thick enough or it's not going to be thin enough and I pile in the milk and then I'm playing catch up trying to roll it back I think I lack the patience to wait to see what the consistency
9: is Is there any little tip or No well the thing about it is that if I mean the shortest way is to melt the butter and flour together that is the shortest way and whisk in the milk so, so you okay. get the roux that you want to uh,
3: Because yes. basically what she's saying is follow the instructions. <laughs> it
9: doesn't say there, Brian. It doesn't say what we do. Uh, it does, yeah. It oh, does. it does. Excuse me. Oh, <laughs> you, I, I, sh- I should look down. Uh, the aubergines, put them in a colander, uh, you know, and salt them overnight if you can or for a couple of hours because what, the bitterness actually come out of the aubergines. But I particularly like aubergines. I find that aubergines, when back in the day when I was a... a uh, a commie chef or whatever you want to call me at the time uh, you'd want the constitution of an ox to eat aubergines but they've I don't know what they've done with them or maybe that I've my constitution maybe you have better. developed the constitution yeah, of an ox I <laughs> imagine. but I did find that wouldn't. it was never really it was never really great uh, what was it you just aubergines. didn't like the
3: taste of it or no
9: they yeah but they were they were gloopy. never
3: right. I, did you, did I, I always find au- aubergines gloopy. Yeah, they are I, gloopy. Yeah.
9: That is for sure. But if you cook them down right, yeah, if you if you take enough salt out of them, if you take enough uh, moisture out of them, have a pan really hot and then fry them on both sides, take them off and drain them on grease for paper, they should be just melting the melt. Okay. That, that type of consistency. And then, uh, then you're kind of going to... Uh, remove the excess liquid from the aubergines. I try and do the aubergines maybe the day before if I'm doing it. If it's not, look, at that's all right for me talking. But if you can, an hour will be absolutely fine. Then you're going to make white sauce by melting the butter in the medium pan. And then um, when the butter is melted, you're going to put in the flour and then you'd slowly whisk it and make sure that you have sort of nice and thick when you're finished. But uh, nice and thick when I say uh, a consistency that's thick enough that will go between the layers. But you don't want a big, you don't want a real thick uh, soupy kind of a, a gloopy one you want something that will spread nicely sort of when you, you put it on okay because it does thicken as well in the cooking doesn't it it does yeah, it, bubbles it up. is yeah and th- that's why people say to me can I not put in corn flour in to make white sauce no you can't because there's no there's no gluten in. there's no starch so the whole thing is melted but just like milk when you have sort of finished, there's no gluten in In why you know people say can I put in a tablespoon of corn flour? I normally have it. No, you can't because what's going to happen is the whole thing will reverse when you put it back in in, into the oven there. Okay, and then um, you go that, and then you uh, then what we're going to do is turn down the heat, then cook until the heat the heat allows, and then allow it to cool, and then you can uh, place a bit of cling film or parchment over it to stop the skin forming sort of on it. Okay. And then you're going to prepare the rest of the vegetables, put the olive oil in a pan, enough to hold uh, if you have a large pan if not a large pot whichever what I wouldn't do a lot of times i start it on the pan and then I'd hoosh it into the pot and I'd sort of whiz, whiz it up that way and they uh, add the peppers the onions the courgette the aubergine allowed, uh, until the, the veg is softened and then you would add the garlic and cook for another few minutes and then turn up the heat a little and add the cans of chopped tomatoes tomato puree salt and pepper Allow to simmer for about 15 to 20 minutes But just make that your veg is cooked as you're sort of doing it along the way and then um, uh, turn off the heat and stir in the basil and turn on the oven to 180 degrees centigrade, likely an oven proof dish. And then you're going to layer up between the vegetables. So you start with the vegetables, then you put the white sauce, then you put the pasta, then you put the vegetables, then you put white sauce, then you put the pasta. And then, if you can get three layers out of it, if not, you get two layers out of it, and plenty of cheese then on top. Don't put cheese in the middle of it when you're actually doing. Just put the cheese up on the top of it when it's finished. Some people like to put in a bit of cheese, but sometimes make the cheese is too much sort of, especially yes, yeah, too much on it. But that, I mean, it is an absolutely lovely. Uh, dish, it was a thing that you just want a day, a day without meat, if that's sort of, And did you yeah, Or tri- a day
3: without fish. Three food. layers of veg. It must be like the size of a doorstep by the time it's done. They're
1: skinny, thin layers.
9: Thin layers, thin layers, I'm saying. Because this will have mushed up. We're cooking the vegetables for 20 minutes. <coughs> for like worse cook Can bread, I veg, just bread. let people
3: at home in a little insight, Anne? Whenever I ask Anne these type of questions, she closes her eyes in disbelief and shakes her head before she actually gives the answer. I apologise for my incompetence <laughs> in, in your company, <laughs> Anne Neary. Okay. Um, it's,
13: uh, <laughs> I do not do that all the time but <laughs> so get off the, get
9: off the stage there now but yeah but, <laughs> but it won't be you know when you cook down when you cook down vegetables they'll be quite quite small mm. but I'd like to get two layers of pasta into it so you'll have that nice creamy sort of thing so like a thin layer then you're white sauce then your pasta then a thin layer
3: well you know, that's and one for you to give it. a go this evening I'll, I'll be sticking to the mi- I'm going to take the pork idea though half <laughs> mince pork half, idea, pork half pork for that yeah,
1: one half mince half pork is absolutely fabulous could you just to do that the meaty one could you use just a bit of
9: sausage meat in with your mince would course that have the same effect of course can would it be nice yeah to bring it Yeah, to bring just it to bring it a little bit more yeah, flavour uh, uh, but buy good quality sausage meat like something that the butchers would sell their sausage meat like not the ordinary regular ones that you buy or buy sort of some that are in the supermarket that or maybe six in a pack and they're mm. a sort of special pack. And do you know what I
1: love Anna, about <coughs> any type of lasagna? I think the flavour is just if you're there for a couple of days which it would be if I made a, a yeah. lasagna it's nicer the next day and it's nicer it again the day after. Because it does really the, does. Yeah,
9: the flavours all marry. They do. Yeah. It's the same if you make a stew it's the same if you make a curry or whatever it is. And actually <clears throat> my brother who has nothing at all to do with cooking would make the most amazing curries because when he was a student uh, a lot of his student friends were asian okay because he was in england at the time and uh, they made the most amazing curries so we're actually going to have it in Rylands. vincent's coming up i think in S- october and he's going to do a saturday of uh, uh, curries from around the world from asia from india mm, from pie, yeah. that type of thing and it, but his flavors i cannot even get it in the best restaurant he is and you can't get a recipe of him.
3: well there you go you heard it from anne Neary. Her brother's an even better cook than she is. <laughs> <laughs> I will say,
9: I will say for yeah, curries. Even if we want something, I'd always ring bin, Let's say we have a party on, come up and do a couple of uh, I do a couple of pots of it, and uh, like that, and do Bombay potatoes and all that type of thing. <sighs> Other than that, we will bring you back a vegetarian. Next, no, next week we're going to talk about back to school, what they should put in oh, the school box.
3: Back to school lunch boxes. All,
9: all that type of thing, yeah. How to keep it nice and tidy, what to do, not to send apples to be peeled by the teacher, all that kind
3: of <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And Neary you know from. Now, don't you? Yes, <laughs> <they> do. <laughs> I leave you two yapping away there in the background. And Neary from Ryland House Cookery <laughs> School, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. So Coming up after a short break, um, Una will be talking to Angela Keau, a playwright, and we've got the winner. Um, of the second of our PW site passes uh, for this morning show.
0: KCL or live, with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre, Carlo helping you step out of the sweatpants and into style.
1: See Fairgreen.ie. Carlo Kilkenny,
13: KCLR.
1: Welcome back to KCLR Live. Now it is Arts Week and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Angela Keogh. Angela is a playwright. Good morning to you, Angela. Morning, and Brian. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Tell me this. How does one go about writing a play? Oh, crikey. Uh, it's what like, a
14: question. <laughs> what a question. It's like putting <laughs> an octopus in a string bag. Okay. Um, so it starts with an idea. Uh, for example, this play, The Girls in the Boat, that opens next week on Wednesday, started with an idea. It started as a poem. Um, I've done that a couple of times, started with a poem and then it became there's uh, a, a YouTube video uh, of the poem, a film. And then I thought it's such rich material, you know, especially women's lives. It's about four women who happen to row. It's about a fictional bow club called Lakeside Boat Club. And so I had an outline of the script and the ideas. And then what's lovely when you get to really work with um, the athletes and the actors, I could develop the script and talk about their own experiences and it all adds it kind of feeds into a sense of authenticity then that the characters are more than what I come up with. They're a collaboration
1: um, once the initial idea has, has developed. So you you push. I, I think that process is really intriguing. So you started with the poem and then you thought there's more to this is more in it. How did it go from the poem to the YouTube video? Oh Well, I have some very willing um,
14: crewmates in Carlo Rowan Club. So the women's masters master just means you're over 27. So we're well over that for sure. And um, I had told them about the poem and I asked them would they be interested in in putting some video to it and they were really up for it. They're up for everything, actually. And there's three. There's two of them in the play. And um, um, then Carlo Arts Office gave us some funding and we were able to pay a videographer. And so we went from there and, and did a great job. He took lots of vo- lots of footage. So I sat down with him then and directed and produced the, the video film.
1: And from that, then you got the idea for the dialogue and you created your characters. And I always think that's one of the trickiest things to write actual dialogue. So you're, you're making life difficult for yourself, I think is what I'm trying to say.
14: <laughs> yes, true, because they're all very different characters. The four women have very different backgrounds. They all work at different jobs. They all come from the same place and they wrote together as teenagers. So they have a shared history and that's in the play. Um, they love their sport. They have a passion for the sport, but it's really about um, the modern world as well living in this century living in this year and and the wider society too so the the sport is a backdrop for it there's a fantastic exhibition on in the Butler Gallery at the moment about art and sport so. I was,
1: When I read actually uh, your about tree that's exactly what I thought of because it's just a lovely thing we're all familiar with sport in one form or another perhaps we play it or we enjoy watching it and to bring that into the arts is such a lovely connection I think so I love what you've done in that regard as well to go back you know you've got four women and they're all very different as you see when you're writing that, how do you differentiate between the voices? I find that intriguing, even in a novel, how the writer has managed to make such a difference in the characters when they're doing it. So have you got any way about that? You go about doing that or does it just emerge naturally?
14: So the characters are more than who you see and and who you hear. They have a whole life history. They have an upbringing. They went to school in a particular place. They have a of brothers and sisters. So I would have a sense of that, of these real people. And because of that, then how they are is is really informed by their their whole cultural experience, you know, their whole history.
1: But does it ever go wrong for you where you think, oh, hang on now, that's the other person's personality sneaking in there in that little line? Does that ever happen to you?
14: Do you know what it's I always think um, writing a play is like writing music. And when you have the sheet music in front of you, it looks as it looks. And then when you hear an actor deliver it, it brings it to life. When you hear a musician play music, it brings it to life. So on the page, it's just flat. Um, So once it's in the voice of an actor, um, they make it their own. That's the other profession. A writer is only part of the process and you couldn't do it without the actor. So once it's in the voice of the actor, it's very, um, they're very separate. They're very different. And the four actors in this play are Elaine Rowe, Susie Mitchell, Mary Pat Maloney, uh, myself, and it's directed by John McKenna and it opens in Greg Namana Scout Hall next Wednesday um, at eight o'clock. And it's in Carlo Roan Club on the 24th and the 26th next week at half past eight. I have two phone numbers where you can book tickets. Do you want me to call them out? Absolutely, yeah, go for it. So to book for Greg Namana, you'll need a pen um, and I'll call it out twice 085 174 0748. That's 085 174 0748 and to book for Carla Ron Club. And Carla Ron Club have been fantastic support of, of this project. They've been amazing. Um, so Thursday the 24th and Saturday the 26th in Carla Ron Club. And to book, uh, call 085 717 6423. That's 085 717 6423.
3: Angela, can I just ask, just before you called out those numbers there, you talked about it being such a collaborative process and that it comes to life when you hand the script over to the actors. Is that a moment of panic? for a writer when they first hand their thing of beauty, their precious script over to an actor to see them bring it to life.
14: It is, but luckily this is my fourth production. So I understand the process and that is part of it. It's part of the joy of it. The first time round, it's very difficult because you're thinking, oh, I wrote those lines and that's what the person says. Second time round, you can just ditch them at the drop of a hat. It's no problem.
3: (laughs) And have you ever gone, no, it's not supposed to to be like that it's not how it's in my head you know do you get involved in that process or is that where the director comes in and takes your vision and delivers it to the actors
14: I've worked closely with John McKenna before and on this project and if if it's very different to the fund fundamentally what's at the heart of the project um then I will step in. But if not, I I do give the actors the creative freedom to be able to do as they see fit.
1: And that's not easy. But even for yourself, I think there's a bit of a pressure there that what you when you were writing what you imagined, it's then your responsibility to bring one of those characters to life. And in a way, that's even a greater challenge, isn't it? It all stops with you.
14: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like standing very you're very vulnerable. Everybody's going to see this on Wednesday and fingers crossed that they like it. Um, But, uh, you know, the actors have done such an amazing job. I'm so proud of them. And I think anybody who sees it will really enjoy it.
1: It sounds really intriguing. And I think, Angela, as well, the idea that this came from a poem, like a thought in your head that turned into a poem that turned into a video, a play, and now it's going to be brought to life in two venues. It's just an incredible achievement
14: thanks a million and I hope to tour further next year with it I hope to tour the Rowan clubs do you do you have to book those tickets by the way Um, it would be better to book them because at least you'll have your seat so yeah
1: Super. Well, listen, Angela Kuehl, playwright, it has been a pleasure. We wish you the very, very best of luck with your performances.
3: Yeah, Angela, thanks for joining us in studio this morning. Um, Coming up on three minutes to 12 o'clock, another jam-packed show this morning. Of course, we've still got to announce the winner of our second OPW family pass for this morning. And that second pass is going to Eileen Fox in Kilkenny. Kilkenny, who correctly identified Roth House as our second heritage site this morning. And we've got, of course, two more of those OPW Pass sites to give away tomorrow morning.
1: I know and you know Ethnic Clues are a lovely way to remind ourselves of all the lovely sites that we could be visiting
3: I think she enjoys doing them I think there might be Angela there might be a bit of an actress in our very own Ethnic out there she's voicing all those clues for us oh brilliant (laughs) 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 You'd maybe cast her for something that you've got coming up it's been a pleasure having you as our company this morning Um, Iona a pleasure as always Um, looking forward to tomorrow morning
1: absolutely and just thinking
3: this day next week you know where we'll be where we'll be can you remember? The um, Ivex show. It, yes, yes. Oh, outside broadcast from the Ivex show. I, I Come live in.
1: day to day. I, I don't think <laughs>
3: as far as that, but yes, look forward to it. I live moment to moment. That's <laughs> even worse. Listen, a pleasure having your company this morning. Do enjoy your afternoon. John Keane is up after the news at 12. And uh, we will be back with you tomorrow morning from 10.
0: KCL or Live with thanks to the Fairgreen Shopping Centre
8: gift card. The perfect gift for all occasions. See fairgreen.ie.